Welcome to Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a pint. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar. Craft Beer Cellar, a family of retail craft beer stores. They're focused on amazing beer, hospitality, and education with 23 locations in 11 states across the country, even in my little neck of the woods here uh, in Amesbury, Massachusetts. I'm in Newburyport, the town over, but I was just there today uh, stocking up um, for the show and for the next week. Um, so head over to craftbeerseller.com, that's C-E-L-L-A-R, craftbeerseller.com, see if there's a location near you, and keep listening to our show for an opportunity to win some free beer from Craft Beer Cellar. You can win that free beer by joining our conversation. You can follow us on Twitter at PubTheology and use hashtag PTLive. And on Facebook, you can comment at Facebook.com slash PubTheology. You can comment anytime during the live show or if you're listening to the podcast later on iTunes or SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app, you can comment anytime using the hashtag PTLive and we'll announce the winner at... Uh, during our first show in May, so keep tuning in. Tonight, we discuss Hogwarts versus Narnia. Would you rather be in school or live in Narnia? We talk a little bit about communion. Can you remember your first uh, communion or Eucharist experience? What was that like? Could you sub out beer or lemonade uh, for the grape juice or wine and still have a legitimate communion service? We talk about difficult Bible stories, Christian exclusivism, and if we get to it, where should our tax dollars be going? That's a full plate. Oh, yeah. It better be full because then we will have full stomachs. Full plate, sleet, full stomachs. That's, that's direct math. That's bad. But it's good math, though. You can't argue the math. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, tonight we have a, we have a guest with us, um, one of the smartest people I know, and I'm not just saying that because he's here. He, <laughs> he's a, a, a good guy, uh, the Reverend Dr. Jesse Tanner. How are you, Jesse? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So um, I just thought it was about time that somebody actually knew something about the Bible and theology beyond the show because we've really just been winging it up till now. Uh, <laughs> what? I, Speak for yourself. I, I, <laughs> Well, see, you think I was talking about. Um, and so <laughs> I brought Jesse on. Let me tell you a little bit about Jesse. He's an ordained Unity minister, and he is professor of scriptural and religious studies at Unity Institute and Seminary. He also holds a Master of Theological Studies from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, where he studied Greek test, uh, New Testament Greek, textual criticism, and early Christian history. As if that was not enough, he also has a PhD in history and philosophy of religion from the University of the West in Rosemead, California, where he focused on interfaith encounter as a form of interpretation and the power it has to bring transformation. Um, so that's a whole lot of degrees, a whole lot of letters. I think you might be smarter than all three of us put together. Um, so thank you. What's that? <laughs> They're just credentials. They don't. 
Just, mean okay, they don't just hand out those credentials, okay? <laughs> Man, those are some of my favorite topics, so I'll be taking yeah. notes tonight, Jesse. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. And if you hear the uh, the Shih Tzu barking in the background, I, I apologize for, the, for that. You know, this, is a, this is a family show, and pets are family. Pets so, are welcome. So what are we drinking tonight? Let's, let's do what we're yeah. drinking. Um, so like I mentioned, I went to uh, I went over to the craft beer cellar in Amesbury and got a few things. And in the spirit of keeping it pubby and keeping it theological, um, I'm drinking uh, La Trappe, Trappist Ale, and it's a quadruple. So You're killing me. It's high test tonight. It's high test. Woo! 10%? It's 10%. Yeah. That's got to be, that's gotta be 10. Um, so I actually um, went for the beer tonight. And I realized that there's actually no, I, I know, and I didn't even I didn't even get it from Kroger this time. Be a round of applause for that. I went for the beer. <laughs> the beer. <laughs> no, but it, there's this little store that I totally forgot we had in town, and it's called it's hysterical. It's called Wine Lovers, but underneath that it says your craft beer store, <laughs> your local craft beer store. So I got this. Can you see the label? It is. Uh, yeah. um, it's a raspberry Belgian. It's a ba Belgian raspberry beer, and I'm telling you, it doesn't really taste like beer. It, Those it, are one of my favorites. I love the lambic. It's really, it's really good. It's really sweet. So if nice. I'm drinking this down and slurring by the end, my apologies. It just goes down really easy. You guys, you guys have some good choices tonight. Well done. Well done. What, what I'm drinking. Drink yeah. I'm actually drinking jasmine green tea. <laughs> Out of. That's what the smart people do. <laughs> Ooh, is that a Fred Rogers cup? It's Fred Rogers. Oh. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's so smart. He's <laughs> laying off the sauce. Howdy, <laughs> I'm just in my office. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. What about you, Brian? Well, tonight uh, I am drinking a summery uh, South Branch summer ale brewed with bitter orange peel and coriander spices from Paw Paw Brewing Company uh, just down the road from me here in Michigan. Good stuff. Good selections. Good stuff. So I think we're definitely going to get into some dense theological topics where Jesse will be able to give us some uh, expertise. But I think we want to start off with our warm-up question, which is the all-important. Would you rather attend school at Hogwarts or live in Narnia? H hands down Hogwarts. It's not even a, it's not even a competition. Whoa. I don't know. I'm still struggling with this one. Um, I actually asked this at the dinner table tonight. We had a guest over, so I had three teenagers at the table, one girl and my two boys. And um, I asked this question, and right right away all of them were like, Narnia. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because Hogwarts is a school. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so, But we, yeah, I don't know, though, because you have a lot to learn in Hogwarts, and I think there's a lot more magic there, but I, I love the creatures in Narnia. I think Narnia is a lot of fun, so I, I'm torn. I couldn't make I a choice. Uh, it is tough. It is tough because, I mean, I guess if you're attending school at Hogwarts, the whole magical world comes along with that. Uh, so there's muggle reality and magical reality. But Narnia, oh. there are more possibilities, it feels like, in Narnia. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. But Gavin wanted to know if it was post-Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't tell me what happens. I'm still on book six or five. Are you serious? Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing. You're bad. I mean, I'm not teasing, but I'm teasing. 
in your band. What are your, what are your I thoughts? Reading, just reading book six to my kids before we come on air. Oh, that's so cute. It is. Well, I was I was disappointed that Middle Earth wasn't an option. Oh, I, I, that, see, that would have been Fire hands away. down, no question. That would have been it. Then maybe that would have made it too easy, right? Yeah. You'd go Middle Earth. I can I can I see that. Earth, but um, Hogwarts Narnia, definitely Hogwarts. I think if I had to choose between that, either or. Yeah. yeah. Like they said the struggle is never with the answer. It's always about getting the right question. Ah, that's right. Ask the right question. That's it right. would be cool to spend some time with Dumbledore. Just a lot of you know wisdom to soak yeah. in. Whereas, I don't know, Aslan. Sometimes he's there. Sometimes he's not. You but you know. know, Tina. Tina raised an interesting point in that, you know, your question is attend school or live in two different places. I think I think this I think the situation needs to be the same. So, you know, you know, live in Hogwarts or Narnia or Middle Earth or attend school in one of these places or set up shop. <laughs> I, I, I think I think the whole why we're in those places is adding a whole other dimension. Because yeah, now I'm thinking, why would I want to put myself in school again, even if it is Hogwarts? I'm I mean I love the I love the castle and the discoveries you make there and all the secrets, but you're right, it is a structured school setting. You know what I just thought of though? What's if that? I was at Hogwarts, like would I get my own broom and could I be on the Quidditch team? Because that might swing me. <laughs> might swing me. There's that. <laughs> there. Were there were there dragons in Narnia? Yes. Yes, in fact, in, um, Boy- in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Cousin Eustace gets turned into a dragon. Okay. I thought that would have been another reason to, to choose Hogwarts. But... And Brian, oh, see, I'm thinking I'll take Narnia for that reason. Brian, Brian, <laughs> just, Brian just earned his deep, deep nerd edge. I think, I think you're thinking of Game of Thrones, Jesse, but we didn't put this on the table because it's a family show. <laughs> oh, that's what this is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And honestly, I would not want to live in Game of Thrones or attend school there. Cause there's yeah. No, no. It's brutal. Every uh, oh, glad you said wig. Uh, everybody ready? Everybody ready for the uh, for the new season starting? Yes, absolutely. I'm still catching up. I'm still catching up. You better uh, hurry. It starts Sunday. I'm on season five, and we're we're getting there. <laughs> hey, it's, it's good stuff. All right, so. Uh, our first real topic tonight has to do with communion, and uh, maybe we could share perhaps uh, an experience that was uh, either the first time we took communion or the Eucharist or a memorable one, but also, uh, given our guest tonight, I'd like to get into the theology of it. What do you think Jesus was doing um, in that meal with the disciples uh, before his execution? Um and what's the significance theologically and so forth. But anyone have a memory of how old you were? Um, who was allowed to participate when you were growing up? That kind of stuff. Um, is it officially or unofficially? And I ask that because my first communion experience, I'm in Barbados in my grandmother's church. It's probably as big as my living room. It was a tiny little ramshackle wooden building. And, and she had a bakery, so the communion that was served was actually like fresh bread from her bakery. And um, I was too young to officially participate, or rather communion was, um, you could participate after you'd made a confession of faith and, and accepted Christ into your heart, you know, yes. that storyline. Yep. Um, but I would be snuggled next to the mounds and rolls of fat that were my grandmother, 
and she would hold me in tight and sneak me pieces of the communion bread to nibble on as the plate was coming around. So so that was that was my first and probably my most um, 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 sweet memory of experiencing communion. After nice. I made the profession and um, you know accepted it as a member of the body of Christ, then it was always this fear-filled experience because it was like you know all the quote-unquote sinful things I would have done during the week. I was like, oh, I feel so bad about taking this. I shouldn't take this, but if I don't take it, other people would know I did bad things. So yeah, there was sort of that. You brought that guilt to communion. Like if you weren't pure enough or hadn't uh, been in the right yeah. Holy living during the week, then you you felt bad about it. Good times, man. Good times. <laughs> okay, so there was a uh, sort of a prerequisite then for you, uh, either sort of having a, a um, conversion experience and or professing that to the congregation. Yes. Okay. Tina, did you do communion or not so much? Not so much. Um, they did communion at my uh, my stepmother's church, so I was probably a young teenager, and it was one of those things where she's like, "Just take it," <laughs> you know. So I didn't know what it meant, you know, not until I was older. So it doesn't hold a lot of symbolism for me. It's like cod liver oil. Just take it. It's good for you. Yeah. There you go. You and do? and I'll be honest oh. with you. I I can't wait to hear what Jesse has to say because, um, I I guess I never really grasped the meaning of it or, or why it's so important. All right, Jesse, you're up. Tell us tell us why we do it. Well, I won't tell you about my first communion experience, but I'll tell you about a funny one. A funny... I was probably... Uh, it was more awkward than funny, but funny now that I'm looking back at it. Uh, I went to a... Wedding, as I must have been 19, 20, 21, something like that. And it was at a Mer Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. And they have closed communion. Yeah, serious deal right. there. Yeah. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Only members, essentially, or those people who have documented evidence of being a part of exactly. the Missouri Synod Church are able or allowed to participate in the elements. You had to show papers. Like, did you have to bring your papers? <laughs> if you're a guest, them? yes, you have to go really? to the wow. ahead of him. You have to go to the <laughs> elders serious. beforehand. Elders, right, right. So papers, photo ID. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm walking up. I didn't know it was. I mean, I didn't know anything about that. And so I'm walking up, and you know, all my experiences have been open communion. And so I'm reaching for the elements, and he's like moving it around, trying to <laughs> keep it from me. <laughs> and he's like, I'm, 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 I'm thought I was like, I thought he was playing with me a little bit, you know, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm reaching like this, and pretty soon someone behind me goes, you got to move on, it's it's closed communion. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, how awkward. <laughs> that Super is awkward. fantastic. Really That's embarrassing, awkward. but funny in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, not fun in the moment, but looking yeah. back, uh, yes. <laughs> Wow. What about you, Brian? Did you have any, you know? Yeah, my, uh, my tradition was a, a little bit similar to um, to the Missouri Synod uh, in the Christian Reformed Church. It was at least you had to have uh, been a professing member, so you had to have gone before the 
church council and the church and, and made a public profession of faith and then you're officially a member and you can participate. And that was supposed to be the rule when you went to other congregations, but it kind of depended where you went on what, how strict they were about it. And that, you know, that was growing up. And now that, yeah, these days I think people are more lax about it and you'll even see more children at the table. Um, but I, I didn't take it until I was a senior in high school, which was when I made profession of faith. And was it memorable? I don't really remember it. <laughs> they, but they, they did let me participate. So, so tell me, what's the big deal? Like, what is the um, why? Why is it so sacred and protected from from people like Jesse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I think I think part of the thinking is that there is just some. Uh, Communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, that it's a special means of grace, right? So something God is doing something unique in that moment, and it's for people who are in. I, I, I mean, that's the best I can understand it. And I think it's rooted in an older Catholic sort of transubstantiation theology where the elements themselves are seen as the actual body and blood, and so it's like... So you have I mean, to be pure speaking and worthy? Of, speaking of Narnia and Hogwarts, it's borderline... Magic. I hate to use that word, but yeah, you mean make believe, not not. There's there's no magic. It's it's just all. Right. Did you just say there's no magic? No, in this oh, easy. I meant in what he's saying. I'm talking about it's, him. It's bring that, your own magic. That trans. But, but I think it's just <laughs> it's just seen as a very protected thing, and that the gatekeepers of the church are doing their job by making sure only the right people participate. Okay. And and yes, yes, Tina. Let's let's follow that trend. Is there magic? Yes. I mean, aside from our own, you know, fantas fantastical desires and imagining, where's the magic? You don't see magic in your life. I see amazing, wonderful things. I don't make a magic. Magic, Why not? magic, magic. When you say magic, what do you mean? Some kind of miraculous, unexplained, joyful thing? Yeah. Like, isn't that what magic is? Yeah, but there's but I got explanation. Everything can be explained. I think it can be. All right, magic will be on the on the sheet oh, we'll uh, soon because I think we need to, I think we need to <laughs> dig into this. But uh, but I, I want to ask our guest, um, what was yeah, what was the theology of the of communion when you grew up, and what is your theology now that you've done some study of early Christianity? Um, Greek New Testament, that kind of stuff. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, where, where, what do you see is happening there, and what was happening in Jesus' first celebration of it? You know, growing up, there wasn't much reflection around it, to be honest. So, uh, I think that really it was through my studies that um, it started to take on much, much greater meaning. Um, and I really think that this issue of closed and open communion really cuts to the heart of it because to me, communion is about community. <laughs> it's about uh, sharing an experience of the sacred with others, with otherness, with the difference that exists in a community of faith. And to um, deprive someone in the community just you know who who's even just showing up it, it seems to defeat the purpose of it um, at least on my view um, you know so you you think that's what Jesus was doing 
I think fundamentally, I mean, it's it's table fellowship, and I mean, he was called a glutton and a drunkard. He goes around eating yeah. and drinking with people all the time, and I think this was a way of providing an alternative, actually, to the sacrificial system that ostracized so many people uh, in the temple cult that was going on. So when Jesus is like, right. oh, this is my body, this is my blood, um, I think he's providing an, it's like, you know, the body and blood of animals that are up there and that whole socioeconomic system that squeezes people out like human junk. Uh, this is my alternative. This is my version of that body. This is my version of the blood. And it's almost decentering God from the Holy of Holies in a way and saying, mm. this is the locus mm. of the sacred is in table fellowship and in community. And now, um, do you connect, uh, is he foreshadowing uh, his death at that point, or do you think that's later Christian reading into what he's doing in that moment? Because it is at least either a Passover celebration or very yeah. near to it. And yeah. how much is he identifying with that? How much is he drawing? It's hard to yeah. say, you know. It wouldn't surprise me if it were, you know, later Christian tradition just trying to make sense of what was going on there. But if you go around turning over the tables of money changers and you go around ticking people off in every corner, um, you ought to expect to get killed in that day and age, in the first century, um, because the Romans no, no. didn't put up with much of that. So yeah. you're saying and, it's not a hard thing to foreshadow. <laughs> he was right. kind of provoking it. Yeah, think, and, and so and so maybe yeah. part of my question was you noted it's maybe moving away from the sacrificial um, system. Yes. And so here we have these common elements of bread and wine rather than right. the death of an animal. And my question was, is he seeing himself as no. replacing that in his own death in a sacrificial light? And now here's, you know, which is a pretty typical Christian reading. Sure. Uh, certainly the book of Hebrews is filled with that imagery that he now is that final perfect sacrifice. Do, do you read it that way, or do you think he was doing that? I think that that piece, thanks for that clarification. No, that, that piece, I think, was, was more likely a, an early Christian um, meaning-making device. You know, it was a yeah. way for, for them to try to make sense out of it. Since sacrifice... You know, that was so common, you know, it, it wasn't a religion that they knew about where sacrifice wasn't a part of the system. You sacrifice an animal as a scapegoat of some kind and you eat knowing that God is eating with you. So there's always a sacrifice and a meal. We're um, overlooking we're overlooking a third option here. <laughs> What's that? I think they were at Passover and they were having a good time, they were eating and they were like, okay, Jesus, say something. You're a leader. And they put him on the spot, and this is just what came to him. Like, What? Like, what? Is, is, I mean, you just think this is all improvisation? <laughs> I think Jesus' entire ministry is improvisation. What are you talking about? I love wow. how we view Jesus and his ministry based on our own lives. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but listen, he, nothing he did was really pre-planned or anything. He's just walking along, bumping up. Uh, into people who need healing and and you know crowds that are gathering around him, you know, and he's doing these miracles or people inheriting and following. I I don't think there was a lot of pre-planning. The one thing he might have pre-planned was his entry into Jerusalem, but apart from that, I think yeah. I think it well, was. I listen. I agree with you that there's certainly a, 
lot of impromptu things. But when you're doing a Passover, one of the most ordered and histor you know historic celebrations that he had done, no doubt, as a kid, all the way up until that moment, I mean... Exactly, and he probably never made speeches with the other because there's a routine that you do, and you, you say things. I've, I've been to Passover, uh, well, modern day. I'm not going to assume that happened back then exactly the same way with the speeches, but you know, I've been to Passover dinners and, and, and suppers, and, and they're blessings that you say at certain times of the meal. I think they put right. them on the spot to come up with something and some, <laughs> some gravitas. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. That's what I'm going with. None of us were there. We don't know. We all making this up. Yep. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So, could you have a valid communion or Eucharist service with beer or lemonade instead of wine or grape juice? Why not? It's symbolic, right? Beer, yes. Lemonade, no. Why? Oh, no we got against lemonade, Jesse. No alcohol. Got to Think about the hardiness of the fermentation juice. process that brings the body of Christ. No, I'm joking. Lemon is cleansing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so is alcohol. <laughs> you don't see people in hospitals wiping wiping your wounds with lemons. They go. They could. <laughs> that would sting a little bit. Um, no, I I agree. I agree. I don't I don't think it matters what what the actual um, you know elements that you use and what they're comprised of. You know, uh, I come like I said in Barbados, we're we're using you know. Fresh out of my grandmother's oven, coconut bread. Um, you know, other yeah. other people are using wafers. Other people are using Hawaiian rolls. It's. I don't think it really matters. Oh, and I don't know how you could just take one piece of that and be okay with it. <laughs> well, I, I could, but but that was just the thing. I couldn't reach into the plate because I'm like what seven, eight years old. I can't reach in, but she could. So she would reach in and sink me a piece. But the plate's going by. It's not oh, like it stops it in front of you us. A piece. Yeah. That's like contraband communion. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, what do you think? Do you think that, that you can use other things in place of wine and grape juice? I mean, grape juice is actually a substitute, technically, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I think you could. Uh, I think it's the intention that you bring uh, to it. And uh, one of my friends, uh, rabbi out in Philadelphia, notes that there is a story in the Talmud about a rabbi who goes to a town um, and as he's visiting and he's celebrating uh, the Sabbath meal or the Shabbat meal, and they don't have wine, they brew beer, and they so they were using beer instead of wine. And the community asked, "Is this appropriate? Can this be um, blessed for the kedush or whatever?" I'm probably messing up the terminology there, but whatever the um, you know the role of wine just in that Sabbath meal is that proper? And, and the rabbi said. If this represents your community, then absolutely, it's uh, it's proper. Well, let me go ahead, Jesse. Even if you ha even if you have a theology of transubstantiation, the 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 transformation that occurs isn't in the elements itself. It it happens because of the consecration that is done by the office of the priest. So the priest could. I guess I don't. I'm not a you know, canon law uh, scholar, but I would imagine that it wouldn't matter so much what the elements are. It's as much as the liturgy and the uh, actual sacrament done by the office of the priest itself. So, I mean, so in the, that sense, you know, beer, lemonade, sure, grape juice. So, 
the priest might decide, you know what? I don't like Merlot. I need, I need some support. <laughs> right. So I'm not I'm not substantiating this thing. Right. Frambois, right? There you go. Exactly. So so here's my question though, um, and and this is a kind of a broader question. Do you think I'm gonna imagine that when the disciples of Jesus were having their Passover meal, which you know we 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 later like to call the Last Supper, and then you know out of that and what he said, we came up with this ritual of of communion and the Eucharist and all that. Do you think, given that if we can assume that that was not Jesus' intention to turn into some kind of ritual around him, but really he was just honoring Passover, do you think that it's something that the Christian church should still be holding on to? It's clearly something that we've created um, as opposed to something that Jesus, upon which whom the movement is based, didn't necessarily say, hey, let's 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 do this, make this new a new custom. It's really it's really an you know, and again ad hoc improvised Passover meal. Yeah, I mean I th- I think that, you know, the whole idea um if Jesus if if we can have any kind of confidence that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, mm-hmm. whatever the this is is that is that referring to the exact words of the ritual? Is that referring to just table fellowship and community? Right. If we lose the the intensity of meaning, the sacred meaning of it, then yeah, let's throw it out. If it's not working and it's just become an empty ritual, it, then yeah, let's throw it out. But I've watched communion bring communities together in ways that. Um, other rituals weren't able to do because everyone's sharing the same cup, everyone's sharing the same loaf of bread, and the, the, the richness of that symbolism and tradition has been healing in a lot of ways for communities I've been a part of. It might have been the first preemptive, you know, pouring some out for the homies, and then it kind of like just spun out of control. It would not surprise me. <laughs> Did it make a spit your barrel there, Brian? Yes. <laughs> exactly. Wow. All right. So I'm uh, I'm moving us to our next question, and uh, I want to hear from all of you. I know Tina's done some thinking on this one. Share a verse or a story from the Bible that you've always had trouble with. Go, Tina. I'm, I'm not going first. Either it was Come disturbing, on. or you didn't understand it, or whatever. You were earlier boasting about all the research you did, so go go for it. Well, I I did I did a little bit of research because you know I I wanted to make sure I remembered the story correctly, because um, I, I I've always had a problem with it and okay you guys know me um, I have a problem with King David I really do uh, yes. um, a, a man after God's own heart um, to me King David was reckless um, he thought he could do whatever he wanted and he just kind of plowed over people and and. You know, it feels like the Bible just makes excuses for that behavior. And I I know sometimes he's held accountable um, by the prophets and whatnot, but it's almost like, it's almost like because, you know, a king is a great war leader, excuses for the things they do. And it it just makes me wonder, first of all, I I really wonder about Bathsheba and how she felt. I mean, it was one of his generals. I mean, somebody that was out fighting for him, and he's back there, you know, messing around with his wife, and 
it, it, she didn't even have a say in it. And don't get me wrong, Solomon is by far one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Um, but I, I almost think, like, you know, with Solomon's choice when God was like, you could have whatever you want, and he chose wisdom, I almost felt like he was looking at his dad going, I don't want to be like that, so, you know, give me some wisdom because my dad's not acting from it. So that, that's my spiel. Well, way to, way to oversimplify Solomon. He wasn't a gem all the time either. Um, no, he's a gem all the time. All I'm saying is I feel like <laughs> David just didn't have a conscience about it, a lot of this stuff he did, and, and you know, everybody just made excuses for him. And, and it, it's like that whole thing where when, you know, whoever wins the war writes history. So, you know, all these people that we have as villains, would we be glorifying them had, had wars gone the opposite way? So, um, so problem with King David as a whole, or just the whole Bathsheba? Bathsheba is my biggest problem with him. But on the on a whole, like he just plowed over societies, and and you know because God told him to, he just wiped out people. He was and, like that youngest son, you know. He had all those older brothers. I think he was just kind of spoiled and kind of did what he wanted, and you know Jesse just looked the other way and. Heavy, heavy, not this Jesse. Heavy is the what is the saying? Sorry, sorry, Father Jesse. Yeah. Heavy, heavy is the crown on the head. What is the saying? Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Is that? Yeah. Is that the saying? Um. Yes, David. David definitely had some issues, but um, it actually is a story that um gives me a kind of a sense of hope for myself, because you know if quote-unquote, David was the one who was, you know, handpicked by God, and let's be real, it really was the prophet. Um, uh, and and he was truly the first king to, I, I would say, unite unite the 12 tribes, and, and, you know, it was like the heyday of their time. And he was a man with some serious flaws, so to me, what it says is you don't you don't have to be perfect to still achieve greatness and 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 live up to your potential, and that I don't agree with what he did, but it definitely inspires me when I look at my own shortcomings and my own faults. So you know I'm not giving David a pass, but I I'm not throwing him under the bus either. Well, and and I, I get that, Ogan, and I think most people feel that way. Um, th that's the general consensus. You know, David was this awesome guy that, you know, God loved, but he had flaws, so that makes me feel better as a human being. But it doesn't give us an excuses for our flaws. You know what I mean? Like, I'm all about embracing your dark side and, and embracing you as a whole person, but it doesn't mean that you don't try to be better. Oh, I, I agree, and I would say that he did. I mean, remember the postscript to that Bathsheba story was the visit from the prophet Nathan and the, the whole, you know, nice story he gave about the rich man killing his poor neighbor's sheep, and, and David David went and David realized it was him. He didn't, he didn't kick Nathan out. He didn't, you know, cut off the prophet's head. He didn't say, you don't know what you're talking about. He went into lament and mourning and... and personal suffering. So yeah, was he totally, you know, blinded by lust and and made some horrific choices? Of course he did. And I think he realized the error of his ways after the fact. So you think I'm being too hard on him? No, not not at all. I I think you're just I, I not being too hard, but but maybe give 
uh, an equal weight to, to both his good side and his bad side. Okay. I just, Bathsheba in the whole thing really tears me up because she had no say in any of this. Now, would you... And, and you can sit there and say, oh, she got to move into a palace and she no, got to be... I don't, I don't, I don't think so, but let me ask this question. Um, as a woman, would you feel the same way if it was Queen David and somebody else's husband? Yeah, absolutely. Are you sure? Yes. Yes, okay. I would. Okay. I think everybody should have a say in their own life. Yeah, but back then women didn't. And and that's I mean that's the bigger that's the bigger issue they they didn't so whether it was King David or any other man and any other woman it women didn't have a say and thank God we don't live in that time anymore and even now we still have repercussions of of gender inequality that we're still striving to overcome but yeah wasn't wasn't a fun time for women back then it was not I'm gonna I'm gonna move to ask our guest do you have a story or a uh, biblical story that uh, you've always struggled with? Uh. Um, one that I've always avoided, I guess you could say, is actually one where Jesus heals the man born blind, actually, uh, in John 9, 1 through 4. Okay. And, and it's actually one that recently, doing a little bit of textual criticism, has actually changed. It went from like a troublesome passage to powerful passage for me because if you remember in that um, in that little unit of that little story you know the disciples um, ask this ask Jesus so this guy is born blind so who sinned <laughs> was it his who sinned you know and Jesus his answer is well neither his neither him nor his parents and then it goes on to say something like um, <laughs> Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. And that always sounded to me like, you know, God God sort of is glorified through this dude's illness. Right. right. And I always wondered about that too. Me. Yeah. God, you know, God, the, just the notion of that. Like, here, you can be blind for 20 years so that later I can do something impressive. Yeah. Yeah, it um, seems a little narcissistic. Yeah, it's always bothered me. Um, kind of, you know, it's, it's been a troublesome passage, and it just doesn't fit the character <laughs> of, of Jesus. Jesus' theology, or whatever, if you will. So what um, turned it around for you? Yeah, you know, recently I was looking at, I was reading through the Greek of it, just kind of, Comparing because because it's troublesome and it had come up in the lectionary a while ago, and I was looking at it and I was like, you know what? There, when you look at the original manuscripts, not original manuscripts, but Codex Codex Sinaiticus, the earliest codex we have. When you look at these, they're all caps, they're all strung together. Yes. There's early primitive punctuation marks there that are not in the New Revised Standard Version, the NIV, any of our modern translations. So the editors and the translators are putting punctuation marks in where we don't find them in early Greek manuscripts. And that, I dug a little bit deeper. I was like, what's going on here, you know? And, uh, it, you know, in the passage, when Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned, 
there's a there's a period, there's a punctuation mark right there, a full stop. <laughs> so then it goes on to say uh, this he was born blind bit isn't even in the Greek text. That was like added to help it, you know, quote unquote, make sense. Uh, and oh. it begins so that God's works might be revealed in him, comma, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Which, like, oh, wow. totally transformed the theology for me. Okay. Because it, it no longer becomes, you know, a, a sort of the theological reason, um, <laughs> you know, the how do I put it? it? It no longer describes theologically why this guy is having an illness, but rather starts to take on a note of discipleship. You know, we need to work the works uh, of the one who sent me, uh, and how, how do we address the meaning and how do we address the transformation, the healing, if you will, of this guy who's blind? We, we do that through working the works. Uh, and, and in working the works, God, God's glory might be revealed in him. So it, like, became a it went from a troublesome passage to a very powerful passage. Are you, you know. sure? Are you sure it was intentional punctuation, or maybe the scribes, you know, were dropping some ink <laughs> off that quill feather? Here we go again with his clinical response. There's always that possibility, you know. But what I find most interesting is that even when you look at our earliest manuscripts, the punctuation is different from what the editors and translators, uh, modern editors and translators, are doing. Yeah. And I'm much more willing to go with the ancient manuscripts. It, it is perhaps my favorite Jesus story, and, and I probably quote it and refer to it more than any others mm. because it removes, it removes the blame and causative action, you know, this man sinning or yes. the parent sinning. For me, that story is about it really doesn't matter how you got where you got. What are you doing moving forward? What are you going to do to use the spiritual tools that you have to move forward, to let that divine nature that who you are, you know, come forward? So I, I, it's, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, it is now for me. Yeah, that, that, that is cool. And look at that. I didn't have to learn Greek. Oh, thank God. So <laughs> <laughs> we have Jesse for. <laughs> I, mean, I appreciate hearing uh Hearing from you on that, Jesse, and I think it's a, a good reminder for all of us that uh, you know we're dealing with texts that are ancient and that we have varying manuscripts and they don't all agree. But um, and it's written in a time and a place that we don't live in now, and so it's always good to look again, right, and not assume yes. our current our current understanding is the understanding. Exactly. How what you about you, Princess Leia? Do you have a uh, favorite verse? Ah. Ah. Wait. <laughs> That was a bad Chewy. Um, <laughs> Princess Leia. For those of you listening later, you gotta go. You gotta Ooh. go back and watch. And watch. You gotta watch. Watch. The oh, don't ever like. Ryan's got these headphones that li literally look like like a silver like a silver ball got sliced in half and he stuck them on there. Stuck my head in the middle. Yeah, exactly. He just wanted to be cooler than we we are. Yeah, I think it backfired a little bit. <laughs> Boom. Wow, well, uh, i got to think of some story about humility now that <laughs> It's not Ogan's best trait, just so you know. You know, uh, a story that I always wrestled with was, um, do you remember that story where, I can't even think of what book it was, but 
Israelites are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and you know they've got these poles that it's on, and they're carrying it, and it starts to slip, and this guy reaches out and s- saves it from hitting the ground. Right? He's like he he loves God so much and wants to do the right thing so much that he saves this thing from hitting the ground, and he is struck dead for doing that act. Don't touch the stove, man. That's what. Yeah. You Don't You're gonna get burned. But I kind of see, Brian, I, I see your point. Like, he's doing something for God, and then he gets struck down? Like, that yeah. just seems a little God wrong. says, thanks for the help. I'll take it from here, by the way. Yeah. You're done. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were, they were hard, hard moving. You know what? He wasn't a union guy. That's what it was. Yeah. Those were all union carriers. He wasn't. He, he was independent. And the lesson is, like, you know, either wear gloves or don't have sweaty hands. You know, do not let that thing drop. Exactly. Or one of your friends is going to die. Jesse, is there any anything in the ancient scripts about that? Like, how do you feel about that verse? About I that? think that story is really meant to emphasize the holiness and supernatural power of this this ark that contains the you know Torah contains the law and it's almost the seat of God and so there's I mean you know we could debate all the time about you know the historical verifiability of that story and all that stuff I mean but the story narratively I think is just really trying to point out that you know keep your have to have a certain to get that kind of proximity to the holy uh, is dangerous it's a dangerous thing to get that close to the whole. So it's about magic, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's about, it's about, about, here. <laughs> it's about not touching God's seat. Don't put your hands where your hands don't belong. That's what it's about. So he's like you. Sheldon Cooper, is what you're saying. Exactly. It's not about magic. <laughs> about magic. Yeah. So, um, so, so for me, again, my 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 having trouble with is stories from around that same time when. They were sent to slaughter all these tribes that were already occupying the quote-unquote promised land and basically commit genocide, you know, especially, you know, that one time we made reference to a few weeks ago or last week, you know, when, uh, was it was it uh, Moses or Joshua, whoever, you know, had to keep their hands up and the... It held Moses' hands in the air. Yeah, and the sun stayed in the sky so they could, like, you know, kill a few more hundred people. Um you know that always disturbed me, but then again, when you remember the historical and evolutionary context of that time, these were Bronze Age people, and for them, it was about slaughter. It was about might equals right, and therefore, you know, if our God El is the strongest God, then we got to go show that by slaughtering a bunch of people, whether they were their enemies or they deserved it. So it's 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 tough to read and. Honestly, um, I give I give them credit for leaving that stuff in, <laughs> you know, that they didn't try after the fact to try and clean up and make God look a lot more compassionate. They were like, yeah, no, this, this is kind of what happened, and, and this is who we were at the time. We'll own it, and we'll keep it in there. Um, but yeah, it was it, and and that was that was honestly one of the first times I remember as a teenager beginning to question this whole dichotomy of God being loving and compassionate 
and you know I keep hearing about this endless infinite love of God and then I'm reading about these tribes being slaughtered and I was like mm, that seems a little weird to me yeah. it just shows me that how how often <laughs> we create God in our own image mm -hmm. according to our own consciousness and our own worldview and cultural mores and values and that was that was their worldview and value system then, and so that gets absolutized and projected onto God. You know? Right, right. Um, on Twitter, Emily says uh, Genesis 18 is a problematic text, and I believe that is uh, God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So I think we hit on that recently, but very problematic text. Yeah. I think it'd have been even more problematic for me if, if it you would have gone through with it. You would have gone through with it. Like there wasn't a mm. a stain a stain of the hand. Yeah, there's actually a, a Jewish midrash that says he actually did go through with it, and mm. Isaac was resurrected. <laughs> oh Lord, there's your magic, Tina. <laughs> oh, man. Zombie apocalypse! Everybody's <laughs> rising. Zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, the 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 terseness, though, of that of that passage in Genesis, though, um, the sacrifice of Isaac. It's almost like the author is, is leaving enough out for it to have this kind of suspenseful effect. So I'm I'm not even thinking of the, the theology of it. I'm just thinking of the way that it functions as literature. It's right. it's 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 drama. It's theater. And yeah. we have no idea how old Isaac was. Was he a three-year-old? Was he a ten-year-old? Was he twenty-five? It doesn't say. It you know he could talk. Imagination. What? He was old enough to talk because he said, "Dad, where's the where's the animal for sacrifice?" So at least, and and to know that you know we usually bring animals along. So yeah, I mean at least that old. But if he's a right. old child. You know? If he's 25 years old and he's letting his dad tie him up to kill him, he deserves. <laughs> he deserves. It's a great, it. a great point. Yeah, because if he's an, if he's a, you know a teenager or a young adult, he's as yeah. you know as strong as his old man dad because you know Abraham was old. Yeah. Fought back. Yeah. Maybe he did, and they just it took that out of the story. Yeah. Could could be could could be. Exactly. So uh, we've. Twitter was getting excited about Narnia versus uh, <laughs> Hogwarts. I'm just going to say, I know that's regressing a little bit, um, but you're bringing it I, full circle. I do want to main... give, give some shout-outs uh, to folks. Carolyn uh, says, "Definitely Hogwarts. Narnia scares me." <laughs> Paul says, "Hogwarts. I love castles." Nice. Angela says Hogwarts all the way. Uh, so everyone went Hogwarts uh, except uh, Tina, I think. And I think I was originally Narnia, but then I switched when I thought about the broom. You're trying to come on to the winning side. He's trying to He's trying to claim allegiance with a winning side now. Way to yeah, go. Try, exactly. See, I was, always, I was always on your side. <laughs> But I'm with Jesse now. I'll take Middle Earth over any of them. Just, just don't put me in uh, Slytherin. <laughs> right. 
See what the sorting hat does with you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, probably Hufflepuff with with these <laughs> headphones. Yeah, really. <laughs> And then, uh, as far as how old were you when you had your first communion, Angela says maybe ten. She says it was pretty meaningful, or maybe I'm just a sucker for playing dress up. And she included a photo of herself at ten years old. Wow! Oh, too cute. My first communion. So check it out, uh, Angela <laughs> Josephine. Well done, friend of mine. Extra points for extra points for providing evidence. Uh, <laughs> So in our in our uh, moments here, what do we want to hit on? We've got, uh, wow, <laughs> what did Jesus mean when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? We could tackle that in five minutes. Or we could talk about uh, tax dollars since we just had tax day. Mm. I'm tempted to go with Jesus, given our guest. Yeah. I, I think he was providing lyrics to Godspell. <laughs> the God spell. It was helpful, wasn't it? Well done, well done. So, all right, so here's this text, John 14, 6. Uh, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and I believe the finish to that is no one comes to the Father but through me. Classic text for Christian exclusivism. Christianity is the only true way to know God. Jesus is the only way to come to a knowledge of God. Um I certainly read it that way growing up, as it was taught to me that way, but now I don't quite see it that way. But, Jesse, I'm wondering, what is your take on a text like that? That's true. It's used as a Bible quote bomb all the time, you know? Totally. Um, That's a good way to put it, the Bible quote bomb. Like, show, well, show, show, show title. Dialogue. Oh, yeah? John 14.6. Conversation stopper. Boom. Yep. Drop, there it is. drop mic. I think, we found, I think we found the title for our episode. <laughs> Truth bombs. I don't think it's about salvation. I don't think, I mean, it's really important to look at the context here, the literary context. The No one ever quotes 14.5. <laughs> you know, the, the question is always about, uh, I mean, it's about, um, you know, how do we get to where you're going? How do we get to where you're going? How, you know, how, the, it's in the context yes. of the Father. So to me, it's not about salvation. It's about discipleship, and and anyone who follows Jesus, um, it has nothing to do with other religions or um, soteriology or anything like that. Um, it's it's a deeply relational text, and you know. To, I hear you. Yeah. Do you think it? Do you think it's related at all that you know? Uh, earliest followers of Jesus were sometimes referenced as the way, in that even that idea of a way is exactly what you're saying. It's a way of living. It's a discipleship model. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, yes, yes. I think the way makes sense, and that's an appropriate connection to make. You know, because we're talking the end of the first century. You know, the the whole notion of being quote a Christian, you know, wasn't fully formed yet, and so yeah. Followers of Jesus, followers of the way. So ultimately, it's only applicable to Jesus' followers. It's not a reference to other religion. Oh. He's not speaking in a pluralistic context at all. Right. I would, so I would argue that in, 20, in 2016, it's still not fully formed. Um, but but uh, the interesting piece about that, the I am the way, the truth, and the life, and all those other I am quotes from Jesus was that we only really find them in the book of John. 
and and right. really John's intention was to prove from day one Jesus was God, not Son of God, but Jesus was was God in the flesh, like the logos, the logos exactly, the word. So I really I I have trouble believing Jesus said any of those I am statements. I think it was all just mm. um, you know words put in his mouth by the author of John to to prove his prove his divinity. Yeah, it could be, but you know, um, I find it actually very, um, even words of the early church attributed to Jesus, I find inspiring oftentimes. Um, you know, Paul wrote, and there's a lot of stuff in there I don't like, but there's a lot of stuff in Paul's letters I really do like, and yeah. so um, that doesn't exclude it from any type of, it doesn't exclude it, not out of bounds for me, I guess, just because Jesus may not have said it. Um, but but how does one respond to exclusivists who drop that quote bomb? And I think the a way to yeah. approach it would be could be that you could just say, well, Jesus probably didn't say it, <laughs> so <laughs> that won't start a fight at all. Right, yeah. that'll be common ground. <laughs> but I, I wonder if if shifting it from salvation to incarnational language. This is this yeah. is sort of like Jesus is embodying. The way, embodying truth, and you know, no one ever quotes fourteen twelve. You know, six verses later, it's like whoever believes in me will do greater things. Yep. Than I do. And so, if that's Boom. the case, that explodes that a little bit and expands what the way, the truth, and life really means. Expands that's a great it. point. It explodes the truth bomb. <laughs> explodes the, or the truth. quote bomb. <laughs> Interception. I, I like that though, and I think you're right. We we take that, you know, we and we. We're all guilty of this at some level, but I know you're aware of this, especially being a biblical scholar. We got to know what you know, not only when something was written, but what's the wider context in the literary work we're finding it in. And so, what is the original author or authors even trying to say here? And I think you're exactly right to point us to what's happening in the rest of that passage. Yeah. So I, I like that. It's the world within the text, not just the world behind the text. Exactly. Well said. Like well said. Well, any uh, any final thoughts from our intrepid uh, group tonight? I say I say we I say we we give our get put our guest on the spot and give him the last word. All right. Um, what do you what do you want to leave us with, Jesse? Just like Jesus was put on the spot and he came up with that whole I'm I'm right. Gonna, right. Gonna life. You're gonna be quoted thousands of years from now, Jesse. <laughs> Make it good. No pressure. Make it good. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm thinking of the paraclete, actually, because we're talking about John 14, and later in 14, the Holy Spirit comes. So I've, I've really felt um, uh, the Spirit working here in terms of just having, you know, thank you for the invitation and, the, you know, the opportunity to uh, chill with you guys and to just discuss some really cool stuff and stuff that I love nerding out on. So, yeah, it's awesome. Well, the pleasure has been ours. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope we can have you again. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd be... yeah we gotta, we gotta, we gotta bring him back. I think he collectively raised all of our, uh, the IQ of all our contributions. You know, that whole rising tide, raising all ships kind of deal. All boats. <laughs> there, there you go. He upped oh, our real yeah. estate value the, here. The honest, <laughs> the honest truth is, this was a, a sinking ship. So thank you for coming at <laughs> just the right time. <laughs> there you go.
Uh, well, thank you for tuning in, friends, to Pub Theology Live. Please connect and spread the word on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can listen anytime on SoundCloud or iTunes. If you want to find a Pub Theology group in your town, somewhere near you, go to pubtheology.com and check out the directory there. And thanks again to our sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar. Visit craftbeercellar.com for a location near you and keep listening in and giving us your comments for a chance to win some free beer. I got to I got to give some shout shout outs to some to some listeners, uh, Alex, Rich and, and Bob and Sarah. Um, some new people I I know. Thank you for uh, listening tonight. We are out. Adieu. Yeah.